0: This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. We can be as elusive as we like. We can be as inventive and experimental and multiple as we want. But until audiences, until readers really begin to see us as individuals who can express a multitude of perspectives, in addition to what they believe is authentic, then I think that that is not going to change.
1: Hello, I'm Mary-Jean Chan, guest co-editor of the spring 2020 issue of The Poetry Review, alongside Will Harris. I'm talking today to Sandeep Parmar, professor of English literature at the University of Liverpool, and the author of The Marble Orchard and Ida Loin, both published by Shearsman. Welcome Sandeep, thank you for joining me virtually. Thank you so much Mary-Jean, it's such a pleasure to speak to you. It would be great to hear your poem, The 90s, to start our podcast, if you could read from the issue.
0: Okay, so the poem begins with an epigraph from Robin Robertson's verse novel, The Long Take. So the poem is the 90s and the quote is, this is our fear of the other, Indians, Blacks, Mexicans, Communists, Muslims, whatever. America has to have its monsters, so we can zone them, segregate them, if possible, shoot them. One, April 29th, 1992. This is not your city. What burns and whose likeness with the earth burns with it? When did you arrive only to leave again, walking through wet cement? What does your longing mean? The sky asks, who made a season as wretched as this? A man stands on his shop roof with a rifle pointed at the crowd. Another stood his ground and did his duty. He got caught up in the frenzy. You watched it on TV, the suburbs greened and rolling. Over and over, a man, many men. They are all men, this much you think. Can we all just get along? Wash and repeat, your mother says. Latasha Harlan's three years older than you, shot dead by somebody's Asian grandmother, a grandmother not unlike yours. She gets community service, money in her hand, empire liquor, 91st and Figueroa, one of the first to go. The city is far away, the city is in your living room. A two bedroom apartment in El Rio, California, once new Jerusalem, "'America must have its monsters. "'It would take a long decade to change you "'from an American to an immigrant to a monster. "'Your likeness burns with it. "'The event is not itself, "'but who is watching themselves being watched with relief. "'You just had a big-time use of force,' "'the cop types into his car dispatch, "'driving a victory lap around the precinct.' Officer, officer, overseer, KRS-1. Chances are you have been looked upon with thoughts of violence. Not guilty, devils, filthy, ice cube. Today the jury told the world that what we all saw with our own eyes was not a crime. Tom Bradley. At the end of the small hours, M.A. Césaire. Everyone cried for himself as the great noise descended the beat of a thousand wings DS Marriott for all that is yours for all you have taken take this this is not your city Two, April 17th 1993 you climb arms over you arms over your head 188 feet into the air to drop and ply yourself from land again in loops of steel-painted red. In the two and a half minutes this takes, two kinds of screams split the air from the ground. This is personal. Below, a mob of black teenagers is angry about an oversold TLC concert. Magic Mountain spokeswoman Eileen Harrell said, Park officials did nothing wrong. She blamed the violence on a crowd attracted by that type of music. Dropping 171 feet at an angle of 55 degrees, you go round again. Yesterday, a federal court imprisoned Stacey Kuhn and Lawrence Powell. This is not personal. You will have due process. You will have equal protection under the law. It was never personal. Running under a man's overcoat to the school bus, you lie down on the green vinyl seats and wait to be counted. Some of you are missing, others are crying. One is focused on a tennis ball-sized jawbreaker seized in his fist. A refugee from El Salvador whose first memory is a low-flying plane you wrongly guessed was a crop duster. Luis believes he is a mutant, a savior, a polymath, a professor Xavier. He is waiting for his father, who has disappeared. The park is emptying, but he concentrates on it, the white ball melting between his palms. Is personal. Helicopter searchlights flood the windows and rotate over your low breathing. Serpents of light and glass upend themselves in the dark, riding empty cars into the night. 3. January 17th, 1994 The old fault shakes our mountains and rolls the San Fernando Valley's avenues into its song of buckled stucco and drywall. The smell of Vermont, Fairfax, and Sepulveda burning. Folds of stone slither along a fissure that opens on your doorstep. A tremor, a riot, a verdict. Your step widens across the pavement. On the bank between sleep and death, you find your life at once to be so orderly unpatriated as you are by the parting of granite. Earth falls from an axe handed to your enemies and turns, its dark soil burning. No reason then to watch your well-built house duly peopled, whiten to ash, except that you might otherwise have refused to leave. Successive tremors fly, dishes thick as cataracts wheel over the linoleum, starboard hard and smash in the pitch. Something disturbing itself in the night has cracked the mock Tudor mold of your exile. An overpass crumbles out of view. That year the neighbors wouldn't rebuild and left. What clings to you, you carry into another century. The cheapness of all you are obliged to call home. This is not personal. You recall without disgrace the borders you crossed, invisible but alive. Wrong question, you say, pointing your body to the west. Four, October 3rd, 1995. This moving quarry on which you have landed carries on burning. Seneca, the only black student in the 12th grade, bursts from his classroom, shouting, my N is free. My N is free. Circling the school annexes where you sit in a row, Figuring the terminal velocity of a car, traveling at speed against a wall without casualties. Your heroes are not good, your teachers proud. They pull the doors shut and let Seneca run himself tired. You gather your books and wait for it to be over. The physicist doubles as the girl's tennis coach holds court. He is a sentimental europhile in a household of women. Every morning, he joins the prayer circle round the flagpole. They quote Pat Robertson into the onshore breeze. This is personal. The door is still shut. Outside, transplanted eucalyptus trees stand guard, dropping their tan, sun-hardened skins. Parallax of shade and milk, axes X and Y, the perfect state of standard temperature and pressure, to whom all laws equally apply. Who is under siege? Who rattles the wall with their footsteps? Fractures the cement. Who longs for the door to open, a leading out? Tracks that appear in the blood, intersecting nowhere. A victory, a quarterback. Who stays on like this until
1: they die? Thank you, Sandy. That was absolutely mesmerizing reading. I just thought we could start by talking about the genesis of this poem which is about the L.A. riots and about the use of police brutality against Rodney King, but obviously in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the recent resurgence and an increasing importance of the Black Lives Matter movement, we're discussing the same themes, it feels, again, and history has never ended. It still repeats itself. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how this poem came about and how perhaps it figures in the current moment.
0: The poem, I think, came out of a a sense that I kind of increasingly was having to do very separately with some of the issues that you've raised, which is that my experience of growing up in the 1990s was very different than I think the world had to become in the first two decades of the millennium and just trying to work out the difference between attitudes towards race. Being someone who lives in the UK now, I sort of had this halcyon view that the 1990s in America was this time of great equality and so I sort of felt a longing or a nostalgia for the 90s. Then I went back and thought, hang on a minute, actually, it was really quite bad in many ways, but that actually the violence that I had grown up around in Southern California in the 90s was not violence that was necessarily targeted towards Asian Americans. It was mostly towards black Americans. And so I started to think more about that. And then I was commissioned by Inouye Allems' Rap Party Readings to write something about hip hop music or rap music. I went back and thought about where that kind of music really intersected with my life. And it was, again, growing up in Southern California and going to school, and particularly around the times of the riots, and so I was sort of listening to music that reminded me of that. But the poem eventually grew and took in other historical moments, the O.J. Simpson trial, an earthquake that I experienced growing up. And what I would say, really, in response to your question, thinking about the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, is... Um, even though this poem was written well before the Black Lives Matter movement, Resurgence Now. Obviously, these are questions that we've been thinking about from multiple perspectives to do with social justice, to do with abolition. But for me, very recently, and this is something that I read after I wrote the poem, Kathy Park Hong's book, Minor Feelings, where she also writes about the experience that she had growing up too during the LA riots. We are now maybe at an age where we're beginning to reevaluate what we thought... Were the conditions in which we grew up in terms of race particularly as
1: asians i see the specificity in how you position i suppose the speaker you say latasha harlan's three years older than you shot dead by somebody's asian grandmother a grandmother not unlike yours i was wondering if you could talk a bit more about positionality and how you found yourself positioned in the situation we go back and in going
0: back thinking about my relationship to race and how that was different from other racial minorities that I grew up with was something that I became increasingly conscious of. I went to school with a lot of Hispanic kids and so I was really a minority in terms of being Asian in that school, but there were also very few white people in my school when I was growing up, which was, was really lovely in some ways. You know, racism had a very different kind of... It didn't really approach us in, in the way that it maybe did later on in my life, being from such a multicultural school, but really to answer the question, I think What I worried about in this poem and still worry about is the position that I would take in telling stories about black violence, violence that's specifically experienced by black people, to do with the riots, but also more broadly thinking about my own privilege and also anti-blackness within Asian communities, which is something that Kathy Park Hong also writes about and was really brought home to me again by that book. So in, for example, talking about the one black student in my physics class in that last section in high school and his use of the n-word which I felt really uncomfortable about how to use that word and I think for example Danez Smith's recent book Homie I think has made us really think again about not just not using that word but also the ways in which iterations of the word and, and iterations of language to do with identity belong to certain types of storytelling and really don't belong to others. And so I found there was a kind of reluctance and a kind of important discomfort and fear in telling stories about violence that I didn't myself directly experience except very peripherally, you know, like being in a theme park and experiencing a riot breakout you know, that's a very different kind of violence. But I think it's important for us to be able to account for ourselves in those cultural moments, and to acknowledge that we ourselves
1: were part of the problem too. Thank you. That's a really insightful take on the poem, which I think succeeds in many ways, but obviously grapples with very difficult poetic questions. Um, I wanted to ask a bit more about the form of the poem. It's a prose poem in four parts. And I noticed that you use the second person you throughout and you've written elsewhere about lyric violence and about the issues that emanate from universalizing trope with the lyric I. I wondered if all of that figured into the poem when you were thinking about it, that the choice of the second person was very intentional and if you could speak more about that.
0: The poem naturally took a prose form because it definitely wanted to resist lyricism. And so choosing the you was another way of doing that. And of course, inevitably, we can't use the you nowadays without thinking about Claudia Rankin's Citizen. I didn't want to use the I and I didn't want to use verse form, even a free verse form really in this poem, because I wanted to create a space that I felt could bring people into a sort of imagined readership. I know that there were other people who who will feel positioned automatically by these histories. And so I guess in a way that, in the same way that Rankin is, uh, Rankin's work is doing really in Citizen, there is a kind of wish to, to step outside of the personal experience and to see oneself embedded in history and to be able to be honest about that positioning. Again, I think the you, in that kind of interrogative way allows the detaching of personal emotion and expression from the lyric space, even though inevitably it is there. There's something really handy and and kind of really, really useful about being able to hold oneself as a kind of object in a space because inevitably, particularly as people of color, we will become objects in the lyric space. And so there is a kind of preemptiveness in being able to say, here I am as an Asian, Asian American child in a space where violence is occurring against Black people in very specific moments in history. And then here is how I am responsible or accountable, or here is how I'm experiencing different kinds of migrational traumas in that space. And I guess also I would say that, one of the real impetuses actually as well behind the poem is to do with that epigraph from Robin Robertson's book. When I read the long take, I was kind of exhilarated by the fact that this is a first novel. It has, a, again, mix of prose and lyric form and everything else. And it's about trauma, a very specific kind of trauma that's experienced by a man in the mid-century through war. But it tells a story about a place that I knew intimately, that I know intimately, which is, again, Southern California, Los Angeles. And I'm reading the book I was really struck by how there were, in the position of women, the kind of absence of people of color from a space that I was sure had women and people of color in it, in the 50s, whenever it was. And so I kind of wanted to go back and say, this city is mine. This city is not something that can be imagined into a whiteness. It was important for me to reinsert myself and to reinsert all of us, really. The collective you in this very white Los Angeles that was dreamed up in Robin Robertson's book.
1: That actually reminds me of previous writings that you've done about the complexities of nationhood and belonging, and also in your Project Threads, which you co-wrote with Banu Kapil and Nisha Ramaya, you talk about how being an immigrant who is inherently inescapably othered, it is psychotic not to know where you are in a national space. And I was just wondering if you could comment a bit on that, being located in the UK, perhaps seen as a BAME poet here, British as well, because you were born here, and obviously writing about LA, which is the place you grew up in, and all these kind of complexities of belonging and nationhood and... National identity, if you could speak a bit about that. I absolutely can, but I'm also aware that there are so many of us who
0: are in that position now, you know, yourself as well, that there's a somehow it seems unusual to encounter people who have a strong sense of belonging, and not just because of migration, physical migration, but all of the ways in which we spectrally detach from the present, from the moment, whether that's to do with capitalism or, I don't know, the virtuality of society increasingly so, particularly in the age of COVID. But yeah, I think the project with Banu and Nisha began with a conversation that Banu and I had through her work. And Banu is someone who, whose work I discovered pretty late, I would say 2016, 15, something like that. And when I read her work kind of all in one go, And I think I've said this elsewhere, but it just felt as though this was exactly the work that I needed. It synthesized so much of my own sense of multiple belonging as well as multiple dislocation across three different continents in a way that I think nobody else had ever done. I'm going to go back to Kathy Parkong again because I think Kathy's book as well is a really helpful piece for me in that story and thinking about the American sense of optimism. So the book Minor Feelings is, is a response to a minor feeling is that discomfort or that dislocation from the American dream, American optimism, this feeling that you should belong in a place like America, but you don't. I'm increasingly, and I think everyone, you know, many people are increasingly suspicious of nationalism, Although there, of course, seems to be people who are increasingly pleased and and enthusiastic about nationalism at the same time. But I think that the projects that I will do and have written, I think, always are conceived around a space that is very much to do with a border and that belonging for me now is really about, really, I belong where I don't belong. And that is the place that I feel the most comfortable.
1: Yeah, I was very interested when reading Threads multiple times that this idea of the nomadic eye that you mentioned also in another piece in Poetry London, do you think that this is the way poetry should go and that this is really how we should be challenging the kind of stability of the lyric eye, which a lot of people still seem to cleave to here in the UK, at least in your assessment, not a British subject in the LA Review of Books back in 2015, that was the feeling that poets of colour seem to have only a few ways of writing about our lives, either we're othered or we're sort of supposed to speak from this place of epiphany and universal experience that is obviously tokenized. How do you feel we've progressed or not since then?
0: So the early review piece was 2015, and, and I think that five years, a lot has changed in that time. And a lot of that change, well, all of that change has been driven by people of colour publishing in increasing amounts. And I think being much more critical about the ways in which they are expected to perform their identity for what is predominantly a white audience in the UK, and it will be for some time, I assume. You know, and that's not just me. There's certainly other people, I think, who've been talking about this, these questions to do with self-fetishizing, exoticism, the marketing and the commodification of poets of color for audiences for a long time. Lyricism itself isn't the problem. And I suppose that if we look at the history of lyric, you know, for thousands of years and multiple historical moments, multiple political moments, different types of faith and different reasons for expression, It's very hard, it's impossible to say that lyric poetry is any one thing or another. But lyric in the post-romantic sense that we think about it now has been expanded in Britain, partly through a reading of American poets, I would say, and the sorts of multiplicities of the lyric that have been possible in the last hundred years in the United States. But also I think that poets of colour who are questioning the ways in which they are meant to reproduce a familiar experience of otherness There has been a kind of a lot of attention I think given to poets themselves about how they handle the lyric persona and even if there's a focus on a kind of transmission of an authentic expression or experience I think the very nature of authenticity is something that we've questioned now to the point where we I hope can't return. I guess where I see the problems are not so much in the poets themselves. I think the problem maybe always has been with the market and the ways in which, as you know, Mary-Jean, we've had this conversation many times about reviewers and about publishers, it is unacceptable really that we still have reviews that are written about poets of colour that begin with very potted othering biography and to spend no time talking about the work. That has to end, that has to change. And I think until that happens, we can be as elusive as we like, we can be as inventive and experimental and multiple as we want. But until audiences, until readers really begin to see us as individuals who can express a multitude of perspectives in addition to what they believe is authentic, then I think that that is not going to change.
1: I definitely agree with your assessment, especially about how writing by people of color are received. I mean, even just recently in The Guardian, poets such as Will and I and Nina and others have been described as Anglo-Asian, which is sort of a label that none of us have ever subscribed to or ever mentioned in in our biographies or in any place, really. And, And also with other mistakes in the piece as well. That was only corrected after we spoke out about it. I was wondering if you comment a bit now then about the Ledbury Emerging Poetry Critics Scheme, which obviously you and Sarah have spearheaded and I've benefited from as a mentee myself. And certainly I think it has changed the landscape to a certain extent, but there's so much more to be done. I wondered if you could speak a bit about that. Sure. Now I'm
0: glad you brought up that review in The Guardian, because that is exactly the kind of thing I'm I'm talking about really. And I think Anglo-Asian actually is still... I think it's still in the review. And it's funny, if you Google the term Anglo-Asian, as I did, thinking, when the hell does this come from? Because it felt like it's sort of, it it has this reminiscence of Indo-Anglian or Anglo-Indian for me, like thinking about, you know, late 19th century Indian poets writing in English in the British Raj. Uh, That's where my mind goes. And it feels a very kind of colonial, awkward hyphenate, which I think, think actually in a way the awkwardness of those hyphenates is really the awkwardness of white people writing about poets of color. I mean, I almost feel sorry for white critics or reviewers because I sort of think they really don't have the vocabulary. They don't have the understanding to be able to write about poets of color in a way that doesn't make them sound, yeah, as if they're reaching for something that they can't understand. And it's, in a sense, it is up to them to educate themselves and it is up to us to, I suppose help. But yes, the Ledbury Critics Programme, the benefits of having all of you wonderful critics. So we have at the moment there are 12 Ledbury Critics in the UK and there are four in the United States, and we're developing a programme in Ireland with Poetry Ireland and others at Maynooth University. So there is a kind of hopefully a collective move towards better reviewing when it comes to poets of color but partly that is again to go back to it's to do with framing poets and it's to really think about the language so to create a vocabulary that is in some ways more adept at being able to talk about some of the questions that we've discussed to do with authenticity identity to think about the slippages the nomadic self the ways in which the lyric persona does not necessarily associate or identify with the biographical life of the poet, ways in which the whiteness of the universal lyric eye is read for white poets that that is never afforded to poets of colour, really, ever. And also, too, I think, to make the conversation more international, you know, having these sorts of discussions with all of you, Sarah and I have been really fortunate to have been led by yourself and by all of the other critics into spaces that interrogate for us this market criticism as a space of generating knowledge about the trajectory of literature and the development of aesthetics whereas you know issues to do with craft for example are so often loaded with assumptions about ability or skill which are necessarily coded by whiteness. So those sorts of conversations, I think, that we're having now are really overdue. And it's definitely the case, I think, that the Ledbury critics and critics, hopefully, who have felt empowered by the work that you're all doing in reading poets of colour, but also white poets, will create a more fair and representative space to evaluate
1: the value of poetry and poetry culture. Thank you, Sandy. It's very generous of you to say that. I was wondering if we could briefly touch on the fact that it feels to me, at least, that a lot of these discussions and conversations have perhaps progressed to a more advanced state in the US with books by Dorothy Wang. And obviously, you've mentioned Kathy Park Hong's Minor Feelings. And it just feels that race is something that in the academy people are interrogating or at least trying to engage with. There are monographs about it. There are heated discussions, you know, on on the Boston Review or elsewhere online, right? People writing about the politics of race and how the whole idea of, you know, a merits-based literary system only works if merit is actually genuinely decided by people of color and a diverse kind of editorial group, whereas anything that's deemed as having merit is usually decided by white readers and critics, and that obviously has its implications. And I just wonder if you feel like in the UK, we are moving towards that more sophisticated debate here. I reflected on this myself, just wondering what the
0: kind of main differences are. And I think you and I are both conscious of this as what we would call in America tenured faculty academics that are permanently based at universities. There are very few in creative writing and in English literature there are not enough critics of color academics of color. I think part of the reason why the United States is further ahead in this conversation is that there are more tenured faculty who are critics of color and there are more high-profile writers of color at MFA or, or MA creative writing programs. People that we would think of or look to who've pushed these conversations forward tend to have a lot of institutional power. You know, Dorothy Wang's book, Thinking Its Presence, gave rise to a academic conference that happens annually, right? That's run by Prigita Sharma and others. And that is something that we are sort of building slowly here. There's Puck, which is, of course, partly led by Dorothy and by Nisha Ramaya and Sam Solomon and others. Developing a critical mass in the academy, as much as it feels somewhat removed and and elitist and everything else, I think is important for trying to redress some of the issues that you are talking about there to do with cultural value and whiteness. But I think that's why the United States is further ahead in that, in terms of criticism. Also the overlap between academic criticism and mainstream public, what we call public facing critical discourse. So something like reviewing is different in both countries. I think we have an opportunity here to try to be a part, an active part of the conversation as academics and critics as well, whereas I think that that's been happening for longer in the United States. For me, looking back, I mean, I was an undergraduate at UCLA in the 1990s and I was taught by Harriet Mullen. I wish I'd realized what an amazing opportunity it was at the time. I mean, it, I realized it was great, but I don't think I quite realized how lucky I was to be sitting with Harriet then as a 19-year-old or whatever. But UCLA's English department was very white. And I remember when I was, again, you know, starting out in creative writing and I I read a lot of Maya Angelou and I loved Maya Angelou's poetry. And I loved her, you know, when I was like 18, 19. And I remember going into a class and saying that and the students really thinking that was funny and awful. And however one feels about Maya Angelou is a different question. But I suppose there's a sort of, there was very much the sense in the nineties at least that to be taken seriously in literature and creative writing, you had to read white people and you had to read certain kinds of new formalist white people and white poets, or you had to read language poets and you were on either side of the divide. I feel like that discourse has opened up so much more with acclaimed poets of color in the US. And I think that we will eventually get there here.
1: I just thought if we could um briefly return to you and just to ask you what's next for you and are there any upcoming projects on the horizon and where should people go to for forthcoming work etc. Oh,
0: I'd much rather spend the next however many minutes we have talking about all of the other people that people should be reading. Um, but well, I'm writing a book, a book of poems. My next book of poems is based all around Goethe's Faust. So I'm rewriting or kind of cutting into Faust and thinking about the Green Revolution. The Green Revolution was happened in the 1960s in India and around the world. And it was uh, an agrarian movement that essentially hugely affected global famine uh, through the growing of wheat, wheat and rice. So I'm thinking about that and migration and partition. And so I'm writing a book on that
1: and then various critical books, some other projects. Yeah. Thank you, Sandeep. That was absolutely wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mary Jane. Thank you
0: for your questions.
1: Thank you. For those of you who are interested, please do check out Sandeep's poem on the Poetry Review website because there will be a link for you to click on the poem. So thank you again, Sandeep. Bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To
0: find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.